Well, I don't, I don't think there's any one kind of thing, but perhaps a whole sort of set of kind of conditions that led up to me getting really interested in photography. Timaru is a very uh, small town, and, and in a lot of ways it's quite an, an alienating environment, or, for, or definitely was then for a young woman growing up there. Uh, in, in a lot of ways, it also was an incredibly beautiful environment with access to, you know, amazing parts of New Zealand. And, you know, my family spent a lot of time in the landscape holidaying and I, I kind of grew up with three brothers. So I had, I, my, um, my family was kind of, uh, you know, was, there were a lot of cars, <laughs> a, lot, a lot of gasoline. Um, my my uh, father and my brothers are car dealers. So I, I spent a lot of time hanging around trying to figure out what I could do as the only kind of girl in the family <laughs> yeah. uh, while they were all fixing motorbikes and boats and cars, etc. And I, I guess that kind of created this drive for me to kind of get out of Timaru and experience the world. And so I left quite young and travelled First, initially to Australia, where I you know had lots of jobs and saved up money and stuff, and then eventually on to Europe. And I kind of got interested in photography as a kind of byproduct of travelling. You know, by the time I came back to New Zealand, about three or four years later, in my early twenties, um, I you know I wanted to go to um, to study photography. So was that through taking pictures of of your travels as such? Yeah, through taking pictures of people and I guess through I guess through the experiences that the camera gave me as well, you know, because the camera is such a, you know, it's an interesting object, provides a way to communicate with people in lots of ways. So I think um, the cam, you know, the camera as a, as a kind of a thing that you have with you opens up potential experiences an excuse and to I, travel an excuse to meet people and to find their stories yeah. kind of thing yeah and I guess you know that's how I kind of got interested in and I guess the ability of photography to engage with people that was funny because when I spoke to Tim Tim Velling a few weeks ago he was he said that um one of his starting points was a lot of his friends went abroad for the big OE and he remained in Christchurch and um, set up a, he was kind of, <laughs> he was kind of annoyed that people felt they had to go and travel and he felt everything I want is here. And so he started doing postcards from Christchurch that he sent to all his friends abroad as kind of a reverse postcard. And um, that was, that was the early sort of formation of his photographic practice. That's quite funny when people can come from both sides of it really. So when yeah. you came back, did you, you studied in Christchurch for photography or what was it you... Yeah, I, I studied at a place called the Photographic Training Centre, which was a one-year one course that was set up and had some great people teaching on it. And uh, it, was, it was a private course. And I think it probably only ran for maybe 10 years or something and then it closed down. But that was my first educational experience in photography. Yeah. And then, um, you know, years later, obviously, I went back again and went to art school. Yeah. So yeah. From, from Christchurch, um, you ended up, was it, was it straight from Christchurch, you ended up working as a photojournalist in Wellington? Was that the path? No, what happened, um, I think just to go back to your initial question too, you know, my mother had always wanted to be an artist and she, you know, she wasn't allowed to be an artist. You know, her father wouldn't let her uh, pursue that career path. And she actually worked hand colouring photographs in a photographic studio when she was younger. And I think, you know, that's the sort of, because of her experience, you know, she created a space for me where I could do what I wanted to do you know I always knew that I could pursue a creative career if I if I wanted to you know because because that option had been closed for her she made sure it was open for me and so I think that's really probably quite important although yeah. you know not necessarily I wasn't necessarily particularly 
cognizant of that in the decision that I made to become an artist but I think it you know looking back on it now I can really see how yeah um, how that was important the authorship of the female voice which is really important in my work you know it's always been been there as well yeah yeah I was just I was flicking through your um dark matter book and just again opening up the first few pages where you've chosen the Bank of New Zealand Ladies Bank <laughs> followed by the <laughs> Jan- Janet Frame picture of an angel at my table and then um, from the film still and then um, the uh, vote for women's abortion rights in the 70s um, was that in Wellington yeah, yeah so that sort of tells that sort yeah. of sets up the whole story doesn't it lovely yeah. way of opening it up yeah <laughs> I'm glad. I'm really glad that you um, that you kind of experienced it in that way. Yeah. <laughs> well, it took, took me a while, and I thought, okay, I'm with it now. Um, <laughs> and so, but to come back to your question about Christchurch and how I ended up getting to Wellington. Yeah. So I um, I worked with Julie Riley, who was one of the um, lecturers at the Photographic Training Centre, and it was sort of set up in a very traditional way, but it. You know, it was a really, really thorough investigation of photography technically and uh, conceptually. And we had to, you know, we had to do all sorts of technical tests with imagery that, you know, you would never have to do in an educational setting now, you know, like we had to underdevelop our photographs and then over-process them and, you know, write about the results, etc. We had all these, like, very intense uh, sets of educational sort of... um, exercises that we had to do which meant that the grounding and and the craft of photography was really strong uh but also julie was really interesting as a as a from you know coming from uh the perspective of uh documentary practice and she'd done some interesting projects and so she really supported me and that's where i first looked at uh documentary photography as it were and made a little uh, body of work about uh, Christchurch street life uh, that year long course mm-hmm. and and then out of that i I ended up my my partner at the time his mum saw an ad for a job in the in the newspaper at the Omaru Mail oh no that might have been late, later actually sorry no i i 'm not quite sure how I heard about the Omaru Mail job but I ended up being the um, the sole and chief photographer at the Omru Mail. <laughs> was my first job. Yeah. Um, coming out out of that, and I was there for one or two years, and then my partner's mum saw the job at the Dominion uh, and the Dominion Sunday Times, and that's when I applied for that. They actually wanted someone with several years' experience, but when I did the interview, you know, they they seemed happy and I had this amazing boss called John O'Brien who um, who gave me the job and I, I think I was the first female photographer on the Dominion. It was a pretty interesting environment to be working in, you know, and later, you know, one of my colleagues actually confessed that he thought that my portfolio was, you know, the portfolio that I submitted for the job had been shot by my partner. So it was, you know, there was... There were six other six or eight other photographers on the Dominion at that time, and then there were another six or eight six or eight on the Evening Post, which was you know just on the other side of the the wall. Because the two newspapers used to share the same building before they were com- combined into one. The Dominion was known for the quality of its photography. You know, it was a really interesting. It was a really amazing grounding for me. You know, like it. it Obviously, it took me a lot of places and I got to do a lot of really interesting things. You know, I, I photographed the first ever woman bishop being ordained. I was there for three years. Um, but I think the experience, again, it just meant that I spent a lot of time making images. That was a really important basis on which to kind of, you know, move forward and build were you working on um, personal projects all that time as well or were you just concentrating on your job we worked 10 days on four days off mm-hmm. and so there was really like good solid chunk of time and I could do something in my own time if I wanted to and 
what actually happened is I ended up going to the States and doing this uh, intensive course called the Missouri Photo Workshop. That was a very conservative photographic course, which was really linked, linked to this idea of fly-on-the-wall photography and to this idea that, you know, the photographer doesn't intervene in the process of what's happening, you know, that they, they just are, a, are an observer. And, you know, they give out these T-shirts, which said, you know, Missouri Photo Workshop, tell the truth with the camera, you know. (laughs) Pretty pretty funny. Actually, my friend Giovanni stole that T-shirt off me. I was about to say, I hope you got it. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, that that was sort of like, you know, we weren't allowed to use flash and, you know, we, um, but it was kind of, the, the, there were people like the photo editor of Time magazine and um, members of Magnum giving us critique, etc. So it was a really interesting experience, but it made me really respond to the kind of restrictions of that kind of concept of photography. And I'd also I also was reading Susan Sontag's On Photography, which was of course throwing up lots of uh, challenges in terms of her critique of photography and, you know, a totally well-grounded critique of photography and how it has operated in relation to, you know, the photographing of an inverted commas other and, and the kind of, you know, the cultural critiques of photography that took place. I was really looking to, to try and push photography around and find other ways of working with people that meant that, photog- that, that those uh, subjects of the photographs would have uh, more of a of a voice in, in what yeah. I made. You know, I came back from that thinking about my own projects, and that's when I started to make the project Don't Push Me. So I'd spend the four days that I had off hanging out with the street life in Wellington and photographing them and building up a relationship, taking images, going away, printing them, taking them back, talking to them about them, talking to them about what I wanted to achieve, what, you know, what their lifestyle was all about, you know, why they were together. And so I, you know, I interviewed them. I used text to try and bring their point of view across in the, in the final presentation of the work. So there were long interviews um, in the Dowsts exhibition uh, that people could read that, that went alongside with the photographs. And also there were quotations underneath the photographs, which I sort of pulled out and selected to emphasise certain points that I wanted to about um, family and whānau and, you know, how, that, gr- how, the, how those, that group of people, you know, felt about each other. And, and that was obviously a really important aspect of it was they felt they were family. And this was all the time that you were still you were still working as a photojournalist on the Dominion. Yes, and I mean the whole idea for the project came from the the way that the that group was being represented in the mainstream media, and my um, my sort of my disillusionment with the kind of monocularity of the newspaper uh, and its perspective. You know, because at the time, you know, there was a big problem with glue sniffing and petrol sniffing and a lot of young people were dying and a lot of lives were being ruined and this the way that this was kind of portrayed in the mainstream media it you know it didn't give to my mind the full story of what was happening so that was the motivation for going and working and making this project and also I wanted to have eye contact so a lot of the photos have eye contact as opposed to the Missouri Photo Workshop take on things which would have been, you know, no, the subject never looks down the camera because that indicates that, you know, they know there's a photographer. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, interesting, yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of, I was responding to all that, to that. And, you know, also at the, about that time too, um, there was a big Magnum exhibition in Wellington, the first one, I think. And I gave one of the talks at a symposium and afterwards we went out for lunch. It was a whole lot of, you know, well-known photographers. And, you know, it was pretty exciting for me as a young mm. person starting to make images and starting to think about photography. I was telling them that I'd been reading, you know, Susan Sontag and on photography. And 
you know, someone said, oh, <laughs> don't read that. You'll never take another photograph. Yeah. And I was like, oh, hang on, hang on a minute. I'm not sure if I'm going to be burying my head in the sand about this. And I think, you know, I was thinking about it before the interview this morning, you know, in a lot of ways that comment, you know, made me really want to go back and and think harder about photography. And in, in lots of ways, it's one of the critical thing for me is that around about that time, I met Giovanni Intra and he was an intern on the um, at in uh, at the uh, Wellington City Art Gallery, and he was intensely interested in photography and passionate about it. And his take on photography was just so uh, diametrically opposed to those kind of um, more traditional and conservative ideas about photography. And he he told me many years later that he saw me at various, you know, photographing like the the anti-Gulf War marches and things like that on top of, you know, power boxes standing yeah. in the, you know, on this, up on top of them so I could get a good view and stuff. And he started sending faxes to the Dominion uh, addressed to me, must have, you know, found out my name from the photo credits and, he started sending faxes addressed to me, you know, come and photograph the latest Brodsky and Udkin exhibition at the Wellington City Gallery. And, you know, it's really interesting. And he'd sort of outline why he thought I might be interested. And eventually I did go along and, and, and we became very, very good friends. Oh, and nice. had long and intense kind of conversations about photography and and it was it was Giovanni in the end who kind of put the idea in my head that I might really enjoy going to art school. <laughs> so was that the next move? I mean, yeah. um, you you moved from Wellington to Auckland. Was that to go to art school? Or, or... Yes, it was, and and it, it was you know I was really thinking hard about photography and the the role of the press photographer wasn't sitting well with me. But also that kind of coming together with meeting Giovanni and him and I kind of having this fantastic ongoing conversation about the medium and, and you know, and this kind of opportunity opening up where I, you know, I could really see that I could still pursue uh, working with photography, but in a way that was motivated more by ideas and, and artistic, I guess, approaches to the medium. And I could still, you know, so I, I kind of became very in, interested in this idea of bringing documentary practice into an artistic context and how could I, you know, respond to critiques of photography um, and, and make uh, artwork that, that used photography to do that. And so my first project, you know, that really does that in a... In a, a is is red eye yeah which i started making when i was at art school yeah and it's, it feels it's, it's quite funny because it feels um i was interested in how it still feels very uh fresh and yet it won't be long before it tips over into something that feels quite historical but then i wasn't sure that was just because i'm in my late 40s and that's just uh my age and other people would see it as really historical already but um it feels like in a really nice point between photography just sometimes gets consumed by its oldness doesn't it and historical nature but it still feels very present and modern I feel at the moment um I, I was interested in the whole project whether um was this just this was your buddies was this um a lot of your buddies from um doing your um arts course in Auckland how how did it actually manifest itself did you consciously construct this is the project I want to do or did you start taking photos of your friends and it sort of slowly morphed into hey this is actually a project that could have some legs here no it very much came out of me thinking through um, problems around photography and representation you know and thinking about the fact that photography had historically focused on you know photographers had historically focused on photographing people who are outside their own social cultural and and class spheres you know I really consciously decided to turn the camera on my own community and to be you know part of those photographs myself 
you know, I thought about how I could do that. And there's the diaristic aspect of the work, but there's also the type of camera that I chose, which was a little uh, Olympus Mew, which apparently are collector's items now. <laughs> um, I've, I've trashed quite a few of them myself. <laughs> um, I, yeah, so I, it was very immediate, you know, and it's just fits in the palm of your hand and, you know, it's there with you all the time. And it's the project is pre-digital, so. So did you uh, get all those massive, massive color images from that Olympus? Yeah, that's wow, right. Incredible, isn't it? Yeah, well, that those big prints were made on a printer that um, it was an early type of printer that never really took off. Uh, it was a wax-based color. Right. Dot. And I think, you know, and then all the wax kind of joins together. And so it created, you know, it gave a very high res sort of feel to it. Mm. Perhaps more so than what a dot, you know, a dot based printer, which yeah. is what we've ended up, you know, predominantly using. But yeah, so I, I decided that. And, and then I also I wanted this real sense of urgency and, and immediacy and you know, kind of no frills aspect to the work as well. And so, you know, I, I've kind of broken all the rules of portraiture. You know, there's direct direct flash, there's strange little bits of this and that kind of intruding in on the photos. You know, they're compositionally, you know, they don't display, uh, you know, they're not, they don't live up to the conventions of what a, you know, crafted and, and well-made composition is meant to be and and so there's a raw there's a real rawness to them that sort of take the pulse if you like of a particular moment and it's it's interesting how um you know again it's always with hindsight but you look at a lot of work from that time across the world from nan golden and wolfgang tillman's and even even when you're just talking then i was thinking about um you know say say martin parr i suppose there was an explosion of there was an explosion of color at that time and it was interesting how you must have been shooting a lot of black and white documentary photojournalism work previously when you were at um in the press it almost feels like a massive hit massive slap of color around the face after all this black and white kind of thing and the and the only kind of way to properly express that that youth and i don't know that the partying aspect you know using the flash a lot that kind of thing really push that color and he was just saying with the actual printing process must have helped it as well it just feels like a um a time when oh, really? it really yeah. color went big really well color color is critical as well because you know black and white is so linked to romanticism and you know a, a kind of a you know potentially romantic sort of idea of of the now you know and so color was absolutely critical to that and and another really important decision about the work that I made, um, I shot it on um, slide film to to, to get an intense colours rather than uh, you know negative, which had a sort of like you know a, a sort of you know less kind of lush and vibrant palette. I guess you know in terms of thinking about journalistic photography, we'd only just got the first colour photographs in the newspapers just as I was leaving journal photojournalism, which was 1991. Yeah, we had, we had to work in black and white. You know, we, we didn't have the technology to, to reproduce colour photographs. They would, you know, maybe do one lead image on the cover in colour. But that was really only just starting to happen as I left. So that is a really significant sh shift, a technological sort of shift yeah. that was taking place around that time. Yeah. And then in terms of thinking about Nan Golden and, you know, obviously Nan Golden was a huge influence and also, you know, also later people like Tillman's, et cetera. But, you know, on my work is a slightly different era to Golden's and, you know, Golden, there's, there's a deep sense of sadness in her work mm. that um, is, is not in mine. You know, I wasn't facing the same cultural moment that she was when she made her you know early diary photographic diary work you know my work was there's a real sense of joie de vivre about it 
And I, yes, look, you know, looking at some of them, I thought, how did you actually stop partying to take the photo? Because it looked like, it felt like it was so in the middle of a party constantly that you were having to, uh, I don't know, re remain artistically um, aware all the time and um, keep getting your camera out and taking another photograph. <laughs> I guess I developed a methodology and all my friends knew uh, what it was. And so if I wanted to take a photo of somebody, it was quite a quick sort right. of action. And then, I, you know, I, I would get them to take photos of me in the same mode, you know. So I'd sort of develop, develop this kind of system, I guess, of like a lot of the photos are taken against a wall. Yeah. A brightly coloured wall, a lot of the portraits. And they're posed, they're not action shots, you know. They're, and, the, and, the, and the viewer, uh, the subject is looking straight at me subject of the photograph you know they're so they're they're not about um unveiling some kind of hidden moment they're about the conversation between the photographer and the subject yeah was the um what, what was it like in terms of um the aids epidemic in the early 90s in auckland so i think the real a lot of the struggles around homosexual law reform etc happened in uh, Wellington I remember when I was a press photographer there was a, there were a, um, that I think the homosexual law reform bill was passed around that time and we had an organization called the AIDS foundation that started around that time which obviously still exists and there were a lot of safe sex campaigns and I was actually involved in shooting quite a few of those I shot some campaigns for the uh, safe IV drug use um, organisation in Auckland, and I shot some images for um, for the AIDS Foundation early on in Wellington. So there was definitely uh, a campaigning to raise awareness um, mm. of safe sex practices, and yeah, that was part of that was part of the culture. Um, but obviously there were still people who, who suffered and people who lost their lives. Mm. Um, not on the same scale as, um, as other places, but you know, New Zealand was still deeply affected by that. So on a kind of more macro level, I guess, into the, of your project Red Eye, um, uh, where did it sort of directly lead you to and indirectly? I mean, it, it's it's an amazing project that you had shown and still have shown in numerous um, exhibitions. Uh, where, where, how did you kind of first first use it? Um, I suppose in in an artistic sense in a in an exhibition space, or how did how did it go at the beginning? The thing with Red Eye, it was it's about breaking down those boundaries and boxes that identity tended to be put into you know so it's about breaking down this idea of gender identity it's about looking at how identity can be fluid and how you know someone can take on a masculine persona or a feminine persona and how uh, you know gender and sexuality and sexual choice can be much more fluid so it's, it's sort of about breaking open all those um, categories and binaries of identity politics. And of course that, you know, now, 25 odd years later, there's a whole lot of other stuff that's going on that's building on that now yeah. um, in terms of being this idea of being post-gender, you know, transgender, a lot of really sort of interesting kind of conversations to think through in relation to Red Eye and, and where that discussion has gone um now in the next generation's work um but for me you know the first time that red eye was exhibited it was exhibited as photocopies because i wanted to get away from this idea of the the fine art the singular crafted fine art print and present something that was much more immediate and the images were never shown in like a linear like um, narrative which was traditional to photography they were always shown in grids 
and they were arranged in particular ways so that, you know, the relationships between images and pairings and kind of um, would, would sort of activate certain sensibilities or it was a sort of an anti-narrative, if you like. So I'm not sure if you've seen the kind of images of them on the wall as grids. Yeah. You know, after after that, after I mean, that was where I was shown all around the country and, you know, the book was picked up by Dowie Lewis Publishing in England and he, he went on to do an international edition. That was, you know, that was all very exciting and amazing. Um, the project really got a lot of legs, as it were. And I made, this, I made... Oh, you were still at Elam? Uh, no, after right, 97, okay. 97 Red Eye was published um, and launched at Artspace in Auckland. Yeah, so it was sort of about taking the pulse of that incredibly rich time. You know, it was such an amazing time on K Road. There was so much going on with artists on spaces and artistic practice. And, you know, there was an incredible group of young artists sort of car- carving out their directions. And it sort of captures that and takes the pulse of that moment. It, it certainly does. It really does. <laughs> I'm sure you hate the kind of Warhol factory um, association, but it did feel like when you look at the pictures of the different people in there and all the artists who yeah. gone, gone on to work uh, since, that you do is quite an amazing hit rate, really. And it's, it's yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, my memory oh, is much more drunk than that, without any kind of um, anyone coming up with great conversations or great projects. It's really nice that you you seem to talk about, um, you know serious conversations about art and gender fluidity and all that kind of thing was that they were conversations that were going on were they absolutely i mean we yeah absolutely we all we all had a a sense of you know what we wanted to do it was really strong uh, our kind of critical consciousness around what we wanted to achieve as a group you know my wider kind of social group was was really there it was re- it was totally front of house you know and 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 that we did achieve amazing things I, i'd like to read you if it's all right i've got a little quote from giovanni <laughs> sadly he's no longer with us but he i'm very lucky that he wrote about red eye and it's pretty funny he wrote a little piece in pavement magazine in 1996 so it says um Red Eye downloads 64 images gleaned from a cast of thousands collected over the past two years. What Shelton modestly terms a social diary is really a charismatic expose of the hideous truths and self-conscious mythologies of unemployed psychopaths who frequent Verona Cafe and actually believe in drag. Shelton is an eye-in-the-pie snapshot voyeurism. In short, she's outed everyone who'd probably have preferred to remain invisible. In Shelton's drive-by shootings, we don't get the authorised celebs. Instead, we get the fiend theatre of cruelty paraded at the Howl for Leather parties and the Andre Breton lookalike competitions regularly held at Test Strip Gallery on Karanga Happy Road. Of course, it's all amount, it all amounts to the same thing, that glamour is a regime perpetrated by photography and it's only glamour which sustains those tenured aesthetics of sadism. It's almost as though Shelton has realised that we need photography as much as we need drugs or alcohol. <laughs> Up until recently, the term documentary has been uttered in critical anguish. Shelton's work, perhaps more by circumstance than by choice, choice makes us rethink this unnecessary cultural cringe. Shelton insists on a premise at the very heart of photography, people are good to look at. What's more, she provides us with work which entertains and titillates as much as it scandalises. And Giovanni always used to say, you know, that that I was taking photo, photographs so I could remember what happened. That's funny as well, because he also uses this, the term drive-by shootings, where you say they're, um, you know, they're all carefully, you got your friends against the wall and they knew that you were going to take a photo and that kind of thing. Yeah, there, there, there was a, uh, you know, coming out of that discussion that, you know, we had earlier, thinking about photography 
as supposedly this objective system. You know, I was critique I was critiquing that, and a lot of my work has gone on to to be about a critique of that idea of photography. And red eye is the kind of beginning of that. Yeah, that, and that's that's really interesting. When it's a, a good point to move on to talk about some of your other work, I guess, because yeah. you could have gone through that direction for the rest of your career. And the next thing that I saw come up was it was Cahill, the next um, piece you made following on from Red Eye. Yes, yeah, yeah, and which obviously is <laughs> much more of a um, an art piece that you've you've made of a um, a light box, circular light box of an aerial shot of the K Road which, you know, has, you know, ideas about surveillance and all that kind of thing involved with it, but is a complete opposite in terms of the stylistic documentary work that you've been doing before. Was it a conscious choice to think, I don't want to pigeon myself in that, this, I I want a wider, wider artistic practice, or how did it come about? Yeah, I guess it's, for me, it's like, there's the micro and the macro, so the it still uses a utilitarian um, photographic methodology, you know, like that of the aerial photographer. So what I did is I, com- I commissioned an aerial photographer to take an image for me um, and do a flyover of, you know, where Red Eye had kind of taken place in and around K Road, around the Spaghetti Junction. Yes, I, what I was thinking very much about photography as a mechanism of surveillance, but also I was responding to, so yeah, Cahill is still very much taking that kind of urban environment as its subject. It's still very much about moving away from photography as a monocular thing, a one-eyed thing. So, you know, like Henry Cartier-Bresson, you know, he was all about this, this idea of the decisive moment. You know, you've got all the components in the image and the image tells the story and, you know, that's all you need. Whereas with me, I was thinking through that the slipperiness of photography and how, you know, if you you put certain text next to an image, you know, it can have completely different meaning. And... With Red Eye, you know, sometimes I would arrive at a gallery or and there'd be some kind of piece of publicity material that just totally had, had you know, was being put out into the public realm that just totally did not get the work, you know, had, had made all kinds of assumptions about who was in the photographs and, and you know, what they did for a living or, you know, who, who they were. So... You know, there's that thing with photography that sometimes it just, you know, you can't, it, that thinking through of is this image that you're making just going to inscribe a person back into the same sort of ideological mould that yeah. they've already been placed in? Yeah. Uh, you know, and you can't kind of change a viewer's conception. They're always going to bring uh, their own cultural construction and biases to viewing an image what you see happening with K-hole is I've sort of split the image into two parts, like two eyes, like a pair of binoculars, to sort of try and critique this, I guess, stereotyping. You know, in a way, it, 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 it's, it's about the stereotyping of that area uh, of K-road at the time. You know, it was, it was really the Auckland ghetto, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. And that and that's really interesting because you've, I mean, you pretty much have maintained that idea of breaking away from the straight photo in many senses uh, throughout many of your subsequent projects where you've either doubled things up or inverted images or um, uh, in, is it room room where it's got the you're looking through the keyhole type of feeling whether it's a certain yeah, the, yeah. so I mean yeah. you've you've often tried to disrupt that. Um, yeah that's and that's and that's where it comes from is it that you feel like without something in between something additional in between the reader and the image you're in danger of them just reading it almost too easily and and putting too much of their ideological baggage on it without even stopping for a moment to contemplate what they might be looking at yeah, I guess I'm trying to recognize the role that the viewer has in constructing meaning in the image and a lot of contemporary photography has done that through um, 
the use of absence is, is one prominent device, you know, like creating kind of empty images that people will fill up with their own um, meaning and ideas. But I guess what, what sort of developed in my practice, I was thinking about this this morning, you know, early on I was really interested in this representational critique of photography and, you know, how photography could have agency and present the views of different voices um, to those mainstream voices that are, you know, that, that hog most of the airtime. Um, and then I think now it's sort of developed and you can see that starting to happen in the K-hole work into an interest in, in, in how photography communicates ideas and, 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 and what you could call visuality. So, you know, photography has, I've, you know, it's been, I've been working with photography for a long time. And I think one of the reasons why it's still exciting to me and I still want to keep working with it is because it is so conflicted as a medium and you know it is at both at once a mechanism of of power and domination but it also can be in a, a gentle kind of force in in our lives and you know there are ways that images can be used to stake out new ground and 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 uh new positions yeah um so yeah i think you can sort of see me starting to think through uh, the formal devices I could use to to engage viewers with that, you know, that's an early example yeah. of that. And there's always been a bit of photography about photography in, in that sense, um, which maybe you've made more implicit than in Red Eye, which might, might have still been about the nature of photography, but that might not have been so obvious to people looking at the images, whereas as it goes on, it does become more, obs uh, more obvious. Um, yeah. I think it's definitely there in Red Eye and a lot of yeah, the things we've yeah. already talked about. Yeah. You know, the use of colour and immediacy and the choices about film and, you know, the way I show the workers' photocopies. And there's still definitely, um, you know, a series of kind of, uh, of decisions being made. Yeah. Uh, but, yes, and I guess that can be construed as a document, a straight documentary project whereas it's less clear in other bodies of work. And then the other thing you just mentioned there, which um, is really obvious looking through your work, is, is the absence aspect um, and how your, your um, opening body of work was all about people and full of people, and then ever since, people have been absent. <laughs> And that's, but that's yeah, but the people are there for sure. Yeah, not, yeah. They're, they're corporal, <laughs> their bodies are, are gone, they've been expunged. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just pu purely in a, I don't know, purely in a, um, I I'm surprised you haven't used people more, purely in a enjoyment of working with people in front of the camera, I suppose, in a, in, in artistically and everything else, but a basic, a basic kind of enjoyment of, working with people i suppose yeah i still get that though i still do work with people to right. make my work yeah, so, yeah yeah um and the work still is very much about people um you know those relationships are still really critical to my ability to make projects and people you know still kind of thinking thinking about having been a press photographer you know i still go on a process of researching and working trying to you know connect with people who um you know, will help me develop projects and give me on um, give me access. You know, I still work with people to get access yeah, and knowledge yeah, around yeah. projects. I've, and I've, and the work is still very much about people. I wanted I've, we we could chat forever because you've done so much. <laughs> you've yeah. done so many projects, but I re I really liked there's the, the two inner forest and Jane says that really I don't know just really jumped out of being um absolutely fantastic and um i was wondering if you could say something about those two projects as well i mean a forest was just well, i saw it at the christchurch art gallery when you had your dark matter exhibition i thought wow that's such an incredible story and so well executed and the actual endeavor of yours to go and find the trees was quite something really <laughs> can you describe it to those people who might not have uh, known about that project again this brings us back to team maru so I grew up in 
in Timaru, obviously, and there's a tree there which is known as the Hitler Oak um, in sort of the urban mythology of the town. That's how, uh, that's what young people would call the tree. Um, and and perhaps in the, um, you know, the sort of the sporting community or the community of the school, uh, Timaru Boys High School, where the tree is planted, might call it the, the Lovelock Oak because it was made, uh, it was won by Jack Lovelock at the 1936 Olympics uh, when he set a world record on, on the first day of the Olympics. And those were the Nazi-stained Olympics. Um, they, uh, the, the tree, the trees were given to every gold medalist, uh, which was about 140-odd from you know, many different countries across the world. And Lovelock's, Lovelock never came back to New Zealand, but he, um, his tree came back and it, it nearly died, actually, the tree. It, it was nursed back to health by um, uh, someone at the Christchurch Gardens, as I understand it, and then later planted um, once its health was restored in the grounds of the school where um, Jack Lovelock had, had had gone to high school, which is Timaru Boys High School. So I'd taken a photograph of this tree in 2004 or 2005, and I just sort of put it aside and hadn't thought about it for a long time. And then in about 2010, I was looking back at old work and, and I found the image and I was thinking, well, you know, if there's this, this one tree, there must be a whole lot more of them. And... I uh, started doing a bit of preliminary research and started to develop a project looking at the trees. Um, and initially, I could find about seven of them online, or reference to about seven of them. But my partner who helped me with the project, I couldn't have done it without him, he, he, he him and I sort of developed a system for searching for them um, because oak trees are, they're all oak trees. And because oak trees are indigenous to most um, countries, you know, north of the equator, there there's different, you know, indigenous words for oak in each, in, a, in many different languages. Right, okay. So we find out the, you know, we've got a list of gold medalist winners and we put their name and, and the word oak in whatever language, whether it was Hungarian or and into a Google search. And that would invariably bring us some tiny little piece of information that we could use. And so often we would travel to that country just based on that tiny skerrick of information that we found on the internet. So we ended up going in 2011 and basing ourselves in Berlin and we made three huge circumnavigations of Europe um, looking for the trees. And, you know, we knew as every, every trip that we, that we were passing trees that we hadn't found yet, you know, because it was so hard to find uh, the information and then often when you went back a second time and looked again you know you'd find it properly um, and so you'd have to go back but uh, so that the trees were national socialism used uh, propaganda and design and in this case plants to kind of um, talk about the ideological belief system of, of Nazism. And these trees got kind of caught up in that. You know, they were apparently um, Hitler liked the idea of giving the oak tree seedlings at the games to gold medalists because it was uh, a clear reference to the original Olympiad and to the fact that olive trees were given to the original um, medalists at, at, uh, at, the, at the original Olympic Games. And so there's a sort of, you know, there was this ritual being invoked uh, where plants become inculcated in, in this ideas and propaganda and ideology of a regime. And so, the, the, you know, the tree, the tree, for instance, the tree in Timaru at Timaru Boys High School is this magnificent, it, it's a beautiful, beautiful tree. It's actually one of the most uh, beautiful specimens that I saw. Uh, it's it must be nearly ninety years old. What are we? Nineteen thirty-six. Yeah. To now. 
Um, so does everyone know the? You said that everyone knows it is the the Hitler oak tree or the Hitler tree. Does do people actually know its history, or is it just known as that? Some people don't know why it's known as that. Does everyone know it? You know. I think it's really yeah, it's interesting because it's one of those things around language. But I think, yeah, I don't know. You'd have to ask people. <laughs> yeah. But I heard about it first as the Hitler oak tree. You know, the older kids would kind of scare you with this idea of the Hitler oak. Yeah. And, you know, so it was sort of part of the sort of urban mythology of growing up in that place. And and then later on, I guess, I found out that it, it, it had been won by a gold medalist and an athlete, you know. Yeah. So, no, you know, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, it so, just looks so amazing when it's uh, when I saw it up on the wall. It just with the story to follow it up, it was an incredible project. Yeah, I think that um, you know that was the first project where I started to get into this um, interested in plants. That was the first project where I started to get interested in plants and plant narratives that you wouldn't normally associate. You know, normally our engagement with plants is on this very aesthetic basis. You know, they're sort of, you know, they're used in particular ways in our lives. And I, I got really interested in, in the, these plant, poor plants that have been co-opted and into the conflicting meanings that they, that they had. And I tried to bear that out in the way that I presented the work is, you know, mirrored and inverted doubles. That, that segues nicely into the Jane Says um, work. You said that you started off with looking at um, plants and all that kind of thing. Can you say something about the Jane Says project? Yeah, so Jane Says. So I was think I was re, I had read um, two books uh, about the history of abortion in New Zealand by Margaret Sparrow and who's an incredible, you know, trailblazing feminist who uh, set up the family planning clinic in New Zealand and has been a long-time advocate of, um, you know, free access to contraception and um, uh, she's been a leader in the abortion law reform process, which is you know, now just really achieved one of its major goals, which was to have abortion taken out of the Crimes Act, um, which happened at the beginning of lockdown, I think. Mm. Well, maybe just before that. Uh, been reading her books, and, you know, one of them is this horrific sort of look at the lives of col the, the colonial women who, settler women who lost their lives trying to um, end a pregnancy. And the research is mostly the primary research that she that Margaret Sparrow did was was through things like um, crime reports in the newspapers and obituaries, things like that. Trying to sort of read between the lines, also looking at advertising and how certain potions and concoctions were being marketed to women to control pregnancy, but in very um, veiled ways in colonial times, you know, so there was this sort of certain language that obviously women would have understood that this this potion you could buy would remedy your woman's problem, you know. <laughs> oh, and, you know, obviously for many women, the outcome of that was that the the thing that they took killed them uh, or, the, or the lengths that they went to meant that they died in the process of trying to have an abortion. As a result of reading those those books, I got really interested in because a lot of these um, concoctions or tinctures or or whatever you want to call them involve plants. Um, a lot of them involve poisons like arsenic, etc., as well, but um, which was little understood. And I kind of had made that work earlier too in public places where I'd looked at Minnie Dean, who'd looked after the children. She was a colonial. Um, figure in New Zealand, um, they were called baby farmers, and they had them all over the colonies. A woman who looked after the illegitimate children of wealthy women, and so the woman would go away somewhere secret, have the child, and it would be given to someone like Minnie Dean or another baby farmer, as they were known, and then they would kind of go back to their normal lives and carry on, um, which is sort of the you know another way of dealing with with the um, unwanted. Uh, pregnancy out of wedlock so yeah I got really interested in the role that plants had 
played in uh, birth control and fertility control and I started reading more widely and I came across this fantastic book called Eve's Herbs, uh, which is written by a man called John Riddle and is about the sort of history of how plants are being used um, in relation to um, ending a pregnancy in, in all, uh, across the globe, really, in all kinds of contexts. And, you know, obviously the part of my process when I'm making a new body of work is to think through, you know, how it relates to everything that I've done and is it a part of a logical trajectory and, um, you know, maintaining and, and developing you know, a conversation around um, things that are relevant to my practice. And I thought it definitely was. Um, in, in the last sort of 10 years, I've been working a lot with plant narratives. As I said, plant narratives that kind of show us things about plants that we, we, we haven't necessarily thought about that much. And this kind of knowledge is, is also incredibly interesting in a feminist context, of course, because a lot of it a lot of traditional knowledge around how um, fertility could be controlled or how pregnancies could be ended safely, etc., was was lost through various religious and patriarchal practices historically. So a lot of that knowledge slipped into um, oral history and then, um, you know, has, has been kind of reactivated in various ways all that knowledge has survived in little pockets or it's been preserved in certain ways. And so with Jane says, you've got a lot of information that was being, you know, written up by male botanists who were going out into the world and, and talk and collecting plants and uh, plant specimens and then, you know, writing up their uses and, um, and bringing that knowledge back to the West, you know, didn't record that type of information about the plants you know they didn't record um, the properties to do with uh, fertility or pregnancy or ending a pregnancy you know probably due to the religious sort of belief systems at the time or so that the kind of knowledge was, was was obscured if you like and and so Jane says looks at that sort of uh, and questions around how history and knowledge has been controlled and um, and, and what what parts of it have been sort of left out, um, and, and it's about this moment now when when that kind of knowledge is being rediscovered, and um, you know the value around it is being reconfigured. The the plants that are in uh, there's one plant featured in every each arrangement in Jane Day's, which. Um, relates to that history of, of, of either of, um, of, of fertility control or reproductive control or um, in, in some way, you know, it was, maybe it was used in a recipe or, t- for, or for a tincture or a tonic that I found a reference to somewhere. Um, so it's about kind of invoking discussion of those plants again and, and, their, um, and their kind of intense and powerful action in the body. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then just to think about come back to your other questions so about um, to come back to your questions about Massey so I guess I've got a bad habit of leaving really good jobs <laughs> <laughs> so I've done it again so you know the first time was the, the really amazing job I had on the Dominion <laughs> in the Dominion Sunday Times which I left in about 1991 um, so this time, yeah, I really just wanted to focus on my work in a way that I um, was unable to with a, you know, with a really intense and demanding full-time role. Um, I love teaching. You know, I think one of the things that I'm really interested in is intergenerational relationships and research. And, you know, I've got really good friendships with, um, with um, lots of my students and I'm really happy to be able to take those with me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, having left Massey, I've still obviously still got those friendships, which are really important. You know, I've worked with a lot of my students. You know, my students have been in my performances because with Jane Says, I also um, I did a series of performances which kind of, um, you know, deliver a lot of that 
research information that we talked about briefly around the plants and, and, and talk about the research process. In a way, the performance takes the audience on a similar journey to the one that I went on um, learning about those plants. And um, so, yeah, the, some of my, perform, my, my um, performances have been performed by, the, by students who I've worked with over the last few years. Yeah, so it's amazing. That's a great thing about teaching is, you know, working with, um, with all kinds of people. And, yeah, I will miss, definitely miss that side of it, but I'm really enjoying um, being able to focus on my own work and having the time that I want to to put into that. So this week we've got Open Up Fair, which, you know, has opened virtually. Yes. Um, you know, obviously we're in the middle of a, a pandemic, um, which is a really incredible time and will, you know, the world will never be the same. And um, this kind of physical experience that we have of exper experiencing art is going to be really transformed and challenged. I think, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the coming months with how galleries respond to the pandemic and, and you know, how our engagement with art shifts as a consequence of that. So, you know, obviously we're seeing lots of online tours of artist studios and book collections and lots of podcasts. Yeah, it's been, it's been great. I've um, There's been... Uh, lots of different online photography festivals that I've checked into. Make, make a couple in the UK that have been good, but it's, and yeah. the AIPA had a um, had a chat, a webinar with Nadav Kanda last night. And I'm thinking, wow, it's really impressive what people are doing. That you think, God, it really does. Although we feel isolated in one sense because we can't travel anywhere, it, it really has brought technology to the fore in terms of being able to have top photographers talk to a small group of um yeah this is photographers and stuff there's good things going yeah. on lots of really positive stuff about access as a result yeah yeah you know, like things that you know would have only happened and been seen by a few people have now happened and been seen by people all over the world you know yeah. and that's a powerful thing but the actual experience the phys you know of aesthetic or physical experience of of art is you know is really important not something that the internet does particularly well. No, 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 no. Uh, so have you been so working on a... I was wondering whether you've been oh. working on the project at the moment, whether, you know, you're just wrapping up other things or... Yes, I've just made a whole um, new lot of Jane Say's work because that project is ongoing. Right. And those are... I made them in January and they're being shown at, at the virtual Auckland Art Fair, as we right. speak. Okay. yeah. Um, and then I... I'm working on a project which is going to open at Bartley and Company Art in Wellington, which obviously we're not quite sure when because things are a bit fluid with COVID-19, but uh, probably be maybe spring, mm -hmm. July, August. I'm not sure. It depends on when we all get back to normal, she says, if we get back to normal. <laughs> anyway. um, and that is about uh, Wire Rapper Eco Farm, which is a, a CSA, uh, which is uh, means community supported agriculture, and it's a biodynamic biodynamic farm in uh, the Wairapa, where I've been getting my uh, fruit and vegetables from for the last fourteen years. Right, and I was one of the founding members. It's it's about how you know there's this this uh, community agriculture represents a kind of, you know, totally um, different system to the monocultural farming system that we've, you know, come to see as normal now, you know, supplying our food, perfect looking food to supermarkets, etc. And it's, it's about this sort of uh, sense of this little tiny microcosm of a farm and the potential that it, that it has. And... So it's just a series of images of the farm taken in late summer. And, yeah, those are going to be on show soon. And there's also a little uh, publication that goes with them. That sounds, uh, that sounds so, um, such a, a COVID-19 story. Did you start that before the, the pandemic? Yeah, I took the photos. Um, yeah, it's obviously really... <laughs> 
um, relevant now. <laughs> I took the photos about a couple of years ago, I think. So yeah, it's looking at looking at these ideas around food security, food ethics. You know, a, you know, a return to you know high quality food. Um, the, there's an there's an amazing aerial photograph of the farm, which shows it. You know all looking lush and green in late summer and then everything around it is just like scorched earth. You know, it's about the ecology of, of, of a farm, you know, the system, the system of the farm as opposed to the, you know, monoculture that surrounds it. So the farms are sort of like a little, little trailblazer. And the book we're just developing, I'm working with my partner who's a designer at the moment, Duncan Munro, we're just developing the concept for the photo book that's going to go with it. And I'm kind of working up a series, which um, a spoonful of sugar, which is a project I made about a house, which was the house of the first single woman in Wellington to get a mortgage on her own without a male signature or signatory. Um, and so there's three books and they're all about sort of, homes or you know because Wairapa Eco Farm is also a home um, to the family that runs it and it's very much built on the Steiner philosophy of biodynamics where you know the animals and the people and the the food and the plants are all part of the system um, so I'm, there's a little trilogy of books I'm also making a book about uh, Edith Barnesworth House which is a modernist house in um, the States and just outside Chicago, which uh, is kind of, that, that book is about the, the female commissioner's relationship with the architect, Mies mm-hmm. van der Rohe. So, so the uh, little photo book about Wairapa Eco Farms is tentatively uh, called Golden Dawn. And it's because this biodynamics is a lot about this, relationship between the the tangible and the non-tangible so the you know the physicality of 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 a space but also the spiritual aspects of it so the book will kind of play out that relationship somehow there'll be a sort of there'll be be these the the photographs which make up the exhibition but I'm also kind of producing a set of kind of responses to those photographs uh, which explore uh, more uh, a less less visible, less tangible sort of aspects. Is that when you have to plan in cycle with the moon or something like that? There's various strategies that biodynamics uses. Um, a lot of it to do with um, compost and uh, biodynamics. They make you know it's it's about restoring nitrogen to the earth and and kind of nurturing the soil and making sure it's alive and um they they make up all these kind of um sprays which are made on particular days uh using different herbs to invigorate the soil etc and there's there's also other things to do with crystals and cow horns and some of it it gets quite esoteric yeah great that's a great um ripe pickings for uh some photographic uh (laughs) exploration yeah, so the book, the book will respond to that in some way and we're just developing that at the moment and it's looking really exciting, actually. And still tying in the whole plant thing that you've been doing of late. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much. I'll let you go and work on all these many, many projects that you've got to do by the looks of it. <laughs>